accepted. Now we're now going to read from Mark's Gospel, so please open up there to chapter 11. We're going to read verses 12 through to 24. Mark 11 from verse 12. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he could find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. And then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it, and they sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you curse has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for being able to read your word again. We pray as we study this together that we would not think that this is just an event that affects people 2,000 years ago, Lord God, this is for us. This is to challenge our hearts, to shape us and convict us. We might be more like Christ. We pray that your spirit would work in us to that end. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have an interesting reading before us today, don't we? We have what might look like Jesus just picking on a fig tree. Now, one of the working bees we had here at the church, we were told anything, any plant that you don't like is a weed. I asked if that applied to the, uh, to the leopard trees. Apparently it doesn't. Maybe this is Jesus' attitude here, that this is just a plant that he doesn't like. It's a weed. We need to do something about it and just get rid of it. Now, we could look at it like that, but that would be very wrong. What we see here today is an event involving a fig tree. It involves Jesus going into the temple. And the events of the fig tree on either side of the temple really bookend this whole reading for us. Uh, We often, uh, when we looked at the parables from Luke's gospel a few years ago, looked at a number of those, we often think of parables as just being stories that you hear and listen to. What we have here with this fig tree, then Jesus going into Jerusalem and then seeing the fig tree again the next day, is actually what's called an enacted parable. It's not a parable that's told with words so much as what you see is the parable. 
The parables, of course, are what we could describe as, as earthly stories with spiritual or eternal meanings. There's a lot going on in this passage. So rather than just jump in at the end, let's go to the start. We pick up here in verse 12 of Mark 11, the day after the triumphal entry. That was a passage we looked at last week of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. We, see, we saw his, his divine evidences of his being in his precognition, in the crowds crying out Hosanna and him fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 of riding in on the colt on the foal of a donkey. We see Jesus enter Jerusalem now. A second time in two days, a much quieter event taking place here. We don't have crowds lining the street. We don't have palm trees thrown on the ground. We don't have cloaks thrown down either. And I think this should actually remind us of something, that even if the crowds who turned out the day before didn't fully understand what the prophecy in Zechariah 9, chapter 9 was about, they still recognised something about that prophecy. So you take away the cult and those sorts of things, it's a very different entrance we have today. So Jesus, in verse 12, is still outside of Jerusalem. It's the next day, heading towards Jerusalem, heading out of the town called Bethany, and Jesus was hungry. And being hungry, he saw a fig tree a little ways off, so they go to the fig tree. It had leaves growing on it. They get to the tree, and there's no fruit there. It's not the season for it. There's nothing there to sustain them or to satisfy them. So Jesus cursed the fig tree and said that no one will eat from it again. That might seem like an extreme reaction. You could argue in defence of the fig tree, because apparently it's okay these days to argue in defence of trees. That tree did nothing wrong. This is over the top. What on earth is going on here? But as we're going to see as we move through this passage, I hope what we'll see as we move through this passage is that this is not an extreme reaction. This is not unfair. This is a fair reaction and one that actually captures the spiritual state of Jerusalem as a whole and Israel as a whole. So anyway, Mark leaves us there at the end of verse 14. The disciples heard Jesus curse this fig tree. No one will eat from it again. And we don't see anything more to do with the fig tree until we get to verse 20. Verse 15, they move on into Jerusalem. Perhaps this is a bit jarring for us that it's, we pick up day after the triumphal entry, Jesus curses fig tree, then he's in Jerusalem, it is in the temple, then we come back to the tree a day later. Mark, of course, is a very action-focused writer. He doesn't often record the travel bits. He says this happened, then this happened. He focuses on the action bits in how he writes. So perhaps it is a little bit jarring. But verse 15 through to 19, we see uh, the next scene, so to speak, is inside the temple itself. Not just the, the streets of Jerusalem. Christ enters into Jerusalem and enters into the temple itself. And what we see going on in the temple is not a pretty sight. Jesus enters the temple grounds and we are immediately confronted by scenes that we should feel a similar sense of outrage to Christ for. The house of God. The place where God's people were meant to come and worship. The place that Isaiah 56 verse 7 
which Christ himself will refer to again very shortly, which we read before, is meant to be a house of prayer, has been turned into a common market. It's become a common place of business. There are people there who were there to buy. There were others there to sell. There were money changers. There were dove salesmen. There were merchants parading their wares around. Their goods for sale were what dominated the scene at the temple. Now, I said this is an ugly sight. Now, no business really presents itself as ugly. Perhaps a visual look of this was quite vibrant. It was bustling. Things are happening. But we need to look beyond the surface and see that spiritually this is a horrendous scene. Why is this a horrendous scene? What's wrong with this? What's wrong with making a profit? Last year, at the end of the financial year, took us an opportunity to preach on what does the Bible say about how we're meant to handle money? And we see that money itself isn't evil. Money itself can be a good thing that God can bless his people with and that they in turn can, can bless the church with and look after their families with. What's wrong with buying and selling or money changers or dove salesmen or merchants walking around, what's wrong is, as we've seen already, is that this place was absolutely not the place for this to happen. This was to be a house of prayer. This was to be a place of worship of the one true and living God, where God was the focus of the people of Israel. And the focus instead has shifted to comfort, to convenience, and to building up a decent enough bank account that we can trust that and not God. There's a sense in which this still was a place of worship, but God was not the one being worshipped in this house anymore. Comfort, convenience, and the hip pocket were what had become the focus of worship. These things had overtaken worship of the one true God. Now, if you looked at the temple from a distance, just like the fig tree, you'd see something which perhaps had leaves on it, something that looked good, something that looked like it could sustain you and nourish you and feed you spiritually. But you go closer and you see that corruption had said in that this temple was no longer bearing fruit. Just like the fig tree, it looked good. Those who are hungering would look at it and come close and be drawn in. But there is nothing of substance or nourishment offered here. Now that is disappointing for a fruit tree. How much worse is this for a temple? For thee temple that God's people had. When we go to worship God, when we come to worship God, just as we are doing right now, I hope this isn't the reason we're here, but we are told in Scripture to not neglect to meet together. There is part of our worship that God requires. Out of obedience, we go to worship God. But we go to hear God's word. 
And when I say hear God's word, I'm not talking about the sermon, I'm talking about the public reading of his word. The sermon is hopefully a helpful explanation of the word of God. The sermon is not the word of God. We go to fellowship with God's people. We go to pray to God as his gathered people. We go to sing to God. It is a reviving, refreshing, nourishing thing. Now imagine we were going to church and as you walk into the doors there, all you had were things for sale. Because I'm apparently getting old, Anna tells me, I had to see a chiropractor this week. In the waiting room, there were things for sale. Dominated the walls, they were nice things and that's okay. But imagine if that's what dominated the walls of the church. Things for sale, things that we can offer to you that are not God's word, that are not reviving to our souls, that are not refreshing to our souls. This is what the temple had turned into. You'd come hoping to to find hope and spiritual vitality and instead you find something that looks okay, but really it's dead and lifeless. It's fruitless. We should never, ever come to worship and feel as if we have never been fed by God's word. We should never, ever have that happen. As somebody who cares for your souls, if you feel like that's happening here, talk to me. And if we can't work through it, you need to find somewhere where you can worship well. For the good of our souls, we have to do that. I don't want you to leave. But to worship, we have to do it properly. What we see with the temple, it stands in complete opposition of everything it is meant to be. And this is why we should feel some measure of outrage when we see these things. Christ demonstrated that outrage. Now, we need to be careful. There is that phrase, righteous anger. Christ demonstrated righteous anger here. I think we very much struggle to do righteous anger well. I think the next closest example of righteous anger we see in the Bible from a person who wasn't God, would be the prophet Nehemiah. Now, I love Ezra and Nehemiah. If you read Nehemiah, read both books together. They work as a unit. Nehemiah, at the end of that, having told the people, don't let your daughters marry people from other countries. I'll take them away from worshipping of the one true God. People heard him and thought, yeah, but those are good-looking fellas over there, so we're going to let it happen. Nehemiah's recorder is pulling people's hair out for their ungodliness. Humanly speaking, I really like Nehemiah for that. But we don't do righteous anger well. Christ is upset because true worship of God has been defiled. When we demonstrate anger, it's often because somebody cut us off. Because somebody said something that prickled us the wrong way. We don't do anger very well. But Christ demonstrates a righteous anger. His outrage here is good. It is right. Now, some people have have looked at Christ's behaviour in the temple courtyard of of turning over tables, of of binding together a a, a whip out of reeds, and they say, they, they look at this guy and say, this is some lunatic who is out of control. But even in this righteous anger, arguably the most extreme behaviour we've seen from Christ up till now, it is not out of control lunacy. The extreme reaction is for all those things we've spoken about. God's house, which is meant to be a place of prayer and worship, has been defiled. 
Something holy has been desecrated. Jesus wasn't angry because his personal agenda, his feelings weren't being satisfied. He demonstrated this because God's word was being trampled underfoot. We look at this scene and we can imagine the number of unrepentant sinners who were just completely disregarding how God had said to use his house. It's extreme, but it's still measured. And we see in verse 17, contrary to the idea that Christ was just out of control here, was that he taught them. He didn't teach them how he was feeling. He taught them through his behaviour what God's house was meant to be used for. And he taught them through the words of the prophets, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now that's the last line of Isaiah 56 verse 7. Christ was not out of control. He was bringing people back to the ways that we are meant to worship in spirit and truth. And what we see here of Isaiah chapter 56, we need to understand that C word we had before, context. The day before this, Christ has just come into Jerusalem. The crowds have lined the street with some recognition, some recognition of that earlier prophecy that the Messiah, the King, the one bringing salvation would come in riding on the colt of a donkey. The Israelites were ecstatic. Our saviour is here. He is going to save us. We don't like the Romans. We don't like the other Gentiles roaming our streets. He is here to save us. And it's interesting to note that the verse, one of the verses Christ references here to bring God's people back to true worship wasn't one which really catered for soul Israelite pride. The seven verses leading up to that, really the first eight verses of that chapter of Isaiah 56, they talk about those coming in from outside. Outsiders' sacrifices being accepted by God. It's in the context of the week where it started with the Israelites thinking that the one who would only look after them has come, that Jesus says, no, there, there might actually be more than just Israel, who was saved by me. There might actually be more than just Israel. And there will be more than just Israel who are affected positively by what I'm going to do. The scribes seem to understand this. The scribes and the chief priests, they seem to get this. And they're not happy. They sought how to destroy him. Now Mark could have added the word again there, couldn't he? They sought how to destroy him. These guys thought they knew how to handle the temple and they've allowed corruption to come in. They would undoubtedly be upset about that, but then it's not just the Israelites who are going to be saved by the Messiah. We don't like that. We see how this is quite confronting in many, many ways what Jesus is doing here. We see 
the offence that the truth and scripture can cause even to those who claim to know and love scripture. Scribes and the chief priests knew the Bible well, but it adds to their offence. We see up to this point that it's very easy to think that we have everything sorted out. This was common practice now in the temple to act like this. This is better. Our way is better than God's way. You didn't bring a dove for a sacrifice? We'll sell you one just outside the front door. Isn't that better? We're going to make a profit doing it. But isn't that better? We see the offence that God's word causes. We see how easy it is to fall into these patterns of disregarding God's word. This is something that we need to be very well aware of ourselves. We can never fall into the pattern of thinking we've got it all figured out because as soon as we do that, we've probably got a lot of things wrong. And we see the need to bear fruit. If we say that we are actually about God's business as his people, then we had better actually be about God and have some fruit to show for it. The next day, Jesus and his disciples, we pick up in verse 20, they're out and about again. They've gone back to Bethany and they see the tree that Jesus had cursed the day before. And this tree had withered up and had dried up from the roots. That happens in a day. In one day, we see that happen. They see this. And Peter remembers, oh, you said something about this yesterday, didn't you, Jesus? I really love Peter. I relate to him so much as we see him through the Gospels. Not always in good ways. One day has passed. One day has passed and this tree is already completely withered from the roots up. Peter says, look. The tree you've cursed is withered away. Jesus responds and Jesus' response brings us back to faith in God. This event with the fig tree, this enacted parable, is absolutely reflective of the spiritual state of Israel and it's a warning to us too that we cannot turn worship of God into something that we just feel good about or we are comfortable with. It has to be how God's word says to worship him. Because if we don't do that, we don't bear fruit. If we're not bearing fruit, Jesus is saying it's because we don't have the right faith. It's faith in other things than God. But if we do have faith, the implication through this is that we will bear fruit. Not only will there be blessings from those who have faith, look at how amazing and powerful faith is. We see there, telling mountains to move and having them move, faith that results in whatever we ask of God in prayer being granted, that is big. As we saw in the kids' talk, it's big and it's very easily misunderstood. I need to be very clear, I'm not saying that big things don't happen when we pray. Think about when we pray. Big things do happen. 
And we should not be surprised when more amazing things than we could ever think of happen as a result of prayer. Because we are committing things to the one who made all things, to the one who holds all things together. The one who knows the beginning from the end, the one who was and is and is to come. How could we not think that big things will happen when we pray? Jesus speaks here about praying without any doubts. If we believe these things are worth praying for, pray, trusting that God will answer the prayer of the righteous man. The effective, fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much, as Chris reminded us in the prayer meeting this morning. But the nature of prayer must be considered. Now, when I say prayer, I'm going to say true prayer before it. True prayer can only be offered up to God by those who have been saved by his grace. When global events of catastrophe happen, when the bushfires were going on a few years ago, how many times do we hear our leaders say, our thoughts and prayers are with you? It's often this throwaway phrase, isn't it? But true prayer is only something Christians can do because true prayer, as 1 Peter teaches us, is according to the will of God. And we can only pray according to the will of God when the Spirit moves us to pray in such a way and when Christ intercedes between us and the Father. If we don't believe in God, if we do not believe the things that Mark is telling us about Christ, then we cannot pray. True prayer is facilitated by the Holy Spirit in accordance with God's word in the lives of his people. Think of the prophet Elijah. He prayed that there would be no rain on the land for three years. He wasn't praying a vindictive prayer. God had said, if the people don't repent, I'll make it not rain for three years. So Elijah prayed according to God's word. And for three years, after already having had six months of drought, Elijah prayed there would be no rain. According to God's word, that prayer was answered. For three years from that date, there was no rain. Now, we have no idea who... God is or isn't going to save. But we should pray for those around us. And God can save. Those who have faith in him are evidence, walking, talking evidence that God does save. God does amazing things through prayer. Think of our prayers for Dwayne and Robbie. Robbie's post, if you've followed along with that, her blog post, she seriously doubted that Dwayne would survive this treatment. possibly looking at his cancer having gone into remission. Do we really think that God doesn't answer prayers? Think about the many things that we've prayed for the Fox family. They still have their struggles, but there are so many evidences of God hearing and answering our prayers. So we should pray. We should pray hard. We should pray lots. We should pray for big things and we should pray boldly because God is a God who blesses his people. 
when we have faith in him, we will pray more and more and more. We'll pray more often and we'll pray bigger things as our, our faith strengthens and is growing more by digging into his word. So dig into God's word. Live by God's word. Worship God according to the truth of his word, not just what we think it should be. The Holy Spirit is at work within us. We saw Israel try and live the way they thought would be pleasing to God on their own strength so many times. And there were many in Israel who no doubt were faithful. God promises to always have a remnant for himself, but so often we see by human effort, failure. We might look at that and think, why would we try? Well, we should try to do these things because if we profess faith, we have the Spirit working in us. And if we have the Spirit working in us, we will, by God's grace, bear fruit and continue to bear fruit. We will see amazing things happen. It's easy to think otherwise. It's easy to become despondent. It's easy to become just worn down. There is so much bad stuff we see. But let me remind you as we finish of this wonderful verse from Psalm 27, verse 13. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Prayer through faith is one of the means by which we see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So persevere. Keep loving God. The God who gives all of us exactly what we need every day let's pray Lord God thank you for this strong warning challenge but also encouragement for us we pray Lord God that we would never depart from your word that we would never seek to worship you according to our own will and devices but that we would worship you the way that you have commanded us to And may we find great joy in doing this. We pray, Lord God, that we would pray, that we would keep praying, and that we would pray by the work of the Holy Spirit in us according to your will, and that we would see big and glorious and wonderful things happen. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.